God, our Father, Lord, we praise you today, and we honor you, and we bless your holy name. We do thank you for your goodness to us. O Lord, that you have sent your Son, Jesus, Lord, to pay the penalty for our sin, to satisfy your wrath towards sin. And Lord, to offer us his life of perfect righteousness, we thank you. O Lord, as we eagerly await his second coming, we ask that you would strengthen our faith and that you would help us to be the holy people you have called us to be, set apart for you, Lord, set apart for your service, set apart... uh, as a people who represent your name. God, help us. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us against sin and temptation. O Lord, that we might live lives consistent with you and lives that are worthy of the calling that we have to be your saints. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. I pray that as today, as we look into these magnificent events that you record for us in scripture that you would help us to see more clearly how fragile life is God how serious you are about the world about life about death about eternity God help us to see clearly give us an eternal perspective I pray we thank you that indeed you are coming again And that, Lord, you are going to destroy evil forever. And we thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We honor you and we praise you in his name. Amen. Okay. So with that, last week we we started into the passage uh, where Paul is giving a significant description about the second coming where here in the book of 1 Thessalonians he has been mentioning the coming of the Lord at the end of every chapter. So at the end of chapter 1, after he had commended the saints, he mentioned that they were waiting for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. At the end of chapter 2 in verse 19, after he had spoken about his ministry and um, and then also uh, the fact that uh, the Thessalonians were his very joy, he mentions chapter 2, verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? He says, In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. And so again, he mentions this coming of the Lord. In the Greek, the word is parousia. And he's looking forward to this event. In chapter 1, they were waiting for his son from heaven. And in chapter 2, here he looks forward to this event at his coming. Then in chapter 3, he mentions this again in the last verse of chapter 3, verse 13. He's praying for their abounding love. And he says so that, He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
And so as he's going along through the book, he keeps mentioning this coming, this coming, this coming. And of course, we know that <clears throat> this isn't only a Pauline thing, right? That, that all of the apostles were teaching about the second coming of Christ, that Christ would come again. Even Christ himself spoke and taught extensively about the fact that he would come again. And that this period of time that was taking place between his first and second comings was a time when God had opened the door of his mercy through the preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the fact that God uh, was freely offering to all who would believe the satisfaction of his wrath, the payment for the penalty of sin, and he was offering eternal life to all who would believe. And so during this gospel age, God is working out his purpose in the course of history. Nevertheless, both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of a time when the Lord Jesus himself, the Messiah, will come and bring his kingdom and establish it upon the earth. And the nature of literature in the Bible that talks about this time talks about it as something vastly more than what we have experienced in this uh, gospel age. Even though Christ is now at the right hand of God, ruling from heaven, it is now a spiritual reign. It is now a spiritual rule. However, when Jesus and the apostles speak about the second coming, they talk about him coming physically, bodily, personally to the earth to establish a physical rule upon the earth. And uh, if you will, this is yet another stage in God's plan of redemption in the world, except that it's going to be uh, something far more than what we experience now when Christ himself is ruling as king physically upon the earth. And of course, there is much scripture about this, of which we have already spoken quite a bit about. However, in, 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 in all of Paul's writings... The books of First and Second Thessalonians are really the place where he speaks about the second coming in great detail. He doesn't have other passages in his writing where he speaks about the second coming in great detail. In fact, this passage that we're looking at this morning, First Thessalonians chapter four, verses fifteen and following, is arguably the most vivid description of the second coming in all of, of the New Testament. So there is a lot that is said here, and it helps us to clearly see a lot of things. But I, as I reminded you last week, I want, to, I want you to bear in mind a, 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 a very specific principle about understanding Scripture, okay? And that is that Scripture is found in its context. And in the context of Scripture is where we get the definition of the meaning of the words of Scripture. So in other words... And this is with any words in any language, period. Language is defined by its context. So, I mean, if you're talking about going to the zoo with your family, then you're talking about going to the zoo with your family. And you might make reference to lions and tigers and bears, oh my, when you go to the zoo, right? But that's all in the context of taking your family to the zoo, Whereas if I was to just say to you, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, what would you think of? 
The Wizard of Oz, right? That's Dorothy's uh, little deal, right? So, <clears throat> so lions and tigers and bears, oh my, well, that may have, uh, uh, I may be referring to the uh, Wizard of Oz, or I may be referring to going to the zoo with my family. But how would you know if you didn't know the context in which I was speaking? Are you with me? So words have a very definite meaning in their context. The context of words defines what they are saying, both in the general sense and in the very specific sense. Okay? So with that, I want to remind you that in the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is frequently talking to the Thessalonian believers about this coming, this parousia, this time when Christ will come again to the earth. And, and, and you need to keep in mind everything that Paul is saying and the context in which he's saying it in the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. Okay? So <clears throat> I want to remind you again of where those passages are. They're in chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13, Chapter 4, verses 15 through, 7, uh, 15 through 18. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And then, of course, Paul gives additional information about what's going on with the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Okay? Or I think it's all the way through verse 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 12. Paul is describing the time of the Antichrist. Okay? So... Bearing in mind all of those passages that Paul is describing the parousia, or the coming, okay, it is here in chapter 4, verses 15 and following, where he really begins to shine a light. And he gives a very vivid description of what will happen at this coming. Whereas before, he just mentioned it. The Lord is coming with his saints. Or that you are our joy and our crown at his coming. Or we're waiting for his son from heaven when he will come again. Right? Now he's going to kind of describe what it is. And something else I wanted to mention. Uh, last week I, I, I didn't even get into the text of scripture. I was just giving you background about uh, various things. And um we asked a few questions we had some dialogue in the class which is good and i'm going to give you a chance again today for some question and answers but um i want to mention to you that i am not here just trying to defend my position on the end times okay if i were doing that i would have a whole different approach to this that is not my chief goal here my chief goal here is to give you the tools to have your own biblical discernment enough to understand what the teaching of Scripture is on your own. That's my goal. Okay? So that's why you won't see me 
with all the hair standing up on the back of my neck, breathing fire about post-tribulational premillennialism. Okay? Instead, I want you to have all the tools you need to be able to understand the issues on your own. And I want to teach you how to study Scripture, especially on something as complex as this, where we have Scriptures all over the place that are making reference to these things. So, if you will, when you hear me talking, you may hear me make statements that sound like I'm defending my own position. But I want you to understand that's not my main goal. However, there will come a day in the near future, if the Lord wills, where I will specifically talk to you about why I believe what I believe about it. Okay, And I'm also going to contrast that with some other positions and explain to you very clearly why uh, others hold the positions they hold and what scriptures that's based on. Okay, And the reason I'm doing that is I want to train you how to have your own discernment, and how to study the Scripture for yourself. Okay? So then, as I was just mentioning, that when we're talking about the parousia, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and here we are in the context of 1 Thessalonians, don't forget the context of everything Paul has said in the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, because it gives us clear insight about what he means when he's saying the things he's saying. The context of Paul's writing defines what Paul means by what Paul says. Are you with me? Okay, furthermore, the idea or the concept of the second coming is found in the context of the whole Bible. First in the context of the New Testament, then in the context of the whole Bible. So here's another thing you have to do when you understand uh, context that these things find themselves in the context of what the whole New Testament teaches about the second coming. Okay, So that nothing that Paul says about the second coming could or should contradict anything that the rest of the New Testament says about the second coming. Are you with me? Otherwise, we have a fundamental problem, don't we? If one passage of the New Testament contradicts another passage of the New Testament, what does that mean about the New Testament? It's not inspired. It's not infallible. It's not inerrant. It's not without error, right? And we know the scripture is without error. So it's not going to contradict itself from one writer to the next, even though they may be speaking in a different context. In the whole context of what the whole New Testament teaches about the second coming, there will not be any inconsistencies. Are you with me? Okay. This is the way you need to think about scripture, family. You can't just go pulling scriptures out of their context and try to make it say what you want it to say. Okay, It says what it says in its context, and it means what it says in its context. You with me? It's a very important thing to understand. So, in getting back to the context of 1 Thessalonians, so we can dive in here, I wanted you to understand what I pointed out last week. Two things. Number one, in the context of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul equates the coming, the parousia, the second coming of Christ as the same event as the day of the Lord. Okay? He does that in 1st Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Okay? 
or if you want a kind of a broader context, chapter 4, verse 15, through chapter 5, verse 3, Paul makes it clear that the day of the Lord that he speaks of is the same thing as the parousia, the coming of the Lord. Okay? Now, he does that again in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Okay? So I want to repeat what I just said so that this is in your mind. Paul equates the coming of the Lord with the day of the Lord. Okay? I'll I'll read you the passage in 2 Thessalonians so you can see what I'm saying. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. Now we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see that? In those two verses, he's saying that the coming of our Lord Jesus, our gathering to him, and the day of the Lord are all the same thing that he's speaking about. Okay? He does that also in the, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In Paul's mind, the day of the Lord is the same as the coming of the Lord. That's my point from these verses of Scripture, and I want you to keep that in your mind as you consider uh, all all that we're we're looking at here. And I wanted to remind you of this other thing, okay? (laughs) Frequently, the Bible will talk about different events that are related to other events. So, for example, when the Bible is talking about the second coming of Christ, okay, it will make all kinds of statements about the second coming of Christ. For example, I made a short list of things that happen at the second coming of Christ, okay? Number one, Christ comes in the clouds. So frequently when you're seeing Christ coming... Wherever the passage is at, okay, he's coming with the clouds, right? With power and with great glory, right? Revelation 1-7. Behold, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, okay? So he's usually coming in the clouds. Well, guess what? When when Christ comes, there's also a resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. It's very clear. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, right? With a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a resurrection that happens at the parousia. Okay? Furthermore, there is a translation of living believers. Okay? Okay? Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them together in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. Okay? That's four things so far that happened at the second coming. Okay? How about this? How about angels and trumpets? How about when you frequently in the New Testament, when you're reading about the second coming of Christ, you read that he is attended by angels and also by a trumpet or trumpets, right? 
These are all things that happen at the second coming. So my point is, at the second coming, Jesus will come with a trumpet sound. At the second coming, Jesus will come with all of his angels. 2 Thessalonians 1. In flaming fire with his mighty angels. Right? How about this? When Jesus comes again, he will destroy the Antichrist. Yeah? 2 Thessalonians 2, I think it's verse 9. He will destroy him by the appearance of his coming, or by the brightness of his coming. That's what the scripture says. Revelation 19, Jesus shows up. First thing he does, throws the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Okay? What will happen when Jesus comes again? He'll destroy the Antichrist. What will happen when Jesus comes again? He's going to rapture the church. What will happen when Jesus comes again? He's going to raise the dead. What will happen when Jesus comes again? He will establish his throne physically upon the earth. So what am I telling you? I'm telling you that the Bible says all these things will happen at the second coming. Okay? How about this? The binding of Satan. At the second coming, Jesus will bind Satan for a thousand years. Actually, one of his mighty angels will do it. It's one of his first orders of business when he begins to establish his throne. The first thing he does, binds the, after he throws the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire, then he binds Satan in the great pit for a thousand years and covers it and seals it over him. Revelation verse 20, verses 1 and 2. Right? When Jesus comes again, he will bind Satan for a thousand years. When Jesus comes again, he will judge the nations. He will not only judge the nations, he will rule over them, the Bible says, with an iron scepter and dash them as a, a pottery. Okay? The idea is he will rule over them physically with might, with power. He's going to rule over the nations. When Jesus comes again, Paul says he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come and he's going to bring judgment personally to every person who has ever lived. Peter says, when the day of the Lord happens, the heavens and the earth are going to melt with fire. And the earth and all the elements, he says, are going to melt with fervent heat. Okay? All those things are things that are said to happen at the second coming of Christ. Okay? However, I want to ask a question. Will all those things happen on the exact same 24-hour day? No. No, of course they won't. Right? The judgment, just, just this one thing alone, the judgment of the living and the dead is something that's separated by a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 5, says that specifically. Okay? So, the point is, is that when, when somebody says, that's going to happen at the second coming, or that's going to happen at the second coming, you can't just take that as verbatim out of its context and, and, and they may try to associate that with something else. 
Okay, well, what are you going to have to do there to understand? Well, you're going to have to look at the context. You're going to have to understand what they mean by what they say. So that you could either say, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches, or no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Are you with me? And it's because people do this, all of us do this. We equate certain events in Scripture, when talking about the second coming, we equate certain events with other events, and if we're not careful the way we explain that, we make it sound like they're all happening at the same time. Okay? And they're not. They're not all happening at the same time. Jesus comes again. Look, before, if you're a premillennialist, <laughs> he comes before the millennium, and he reigns for a thousand years with his saints, and then at the end of the millennium, the wicked dead are raised and judged at the great white throne judgment, and the heavens and the earth are destroyed at this point as well. So, between the second coming of Christ before the millennium and the destruction of the heavens and the earth, which is at the end of the millennium, there's a thousand years that passes in time and space between that time. You follow me? Yet, both of those are said to happen at the second coming of Christ in Scripture. So you have to understand what the Bible means by what it says. Okay? I'll give you another example. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. I want to read, I don't want to misquote it here. But you need to understand this. This is so important. Daniel chapter 12 speaks of a resurrection. Actually, it speaks of two resurrections. Daniel chapter 12. Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay? Two resurrections, right? A resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto disgrace and everlasting contempt. Two different resurrections in the same verse. When you read that verse, doesn't it sound like there's they're all raised up at the same time? I'll read it again. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Well, if you were just reading that, in its context, it sounds like that all happens at the same time. But flip over to Revelation verse 20, chapter 20, verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. The end of verse 4 says... Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. right? Then you read just a few verses later, after the thousand years are over, the dead, the wicked dead, are raised... And theirs is a, a, a resurrection unto judgment and everlasting contempt because they're, they're, what happens to them? Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Right? So what am I saying? I'm saying here's a verse in Daniel that talks about two resurrections right in the same verse. In its context, it sounds like all that's happening at the same time. 
But later you read in Revelation 20, verses 5 and following, and those two events are separated by a thousand years of time. You follow me? So it's, it's very important to understand that the Bible may speak about events in one place, but we get additional insight in another place that describes the order of those events or gives us additional information about those events. Are you with me? Okay. So also, thus is the nature of so much controversy when you're talking about end times. Okay? Especially because when the Bible's making a statement about the end of the days, and, and, and there's this view of a whole, a whole string full of events that happen in time and space, it may just refer to those in the context of a couple verses of Scripture, but it's actually something that's speaking about something that spans a, a great length of time. Are you with me? So when you start thinking about the order of events that are happening in time and space, by what Scripture says, it's very important to understand what the whole context of Scripture says about those events. Are you with me? Are you hopeless now, wondering if you'll ever understand? Good. I'm glad you're not, because it's not that difficult if you really want to learn. Okay? So that takes us to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. So the thing then that happens when you start looking at all these different things that happen in Scripture, you have to begin to tie them together. Because like I said, Paul's events that he speaks about in reference to the second coming are, are actually tied to the second coming in, in all of Scripture. So you can't just take the one little passage and, and think you have the whole picture when we get additional uh, information from the writings of John or the writings of Peter or the Old Testament prophets or Jesus himself. You know, you got to put that stuff together to be able to understand exactly what these things mean, okay? And that's extremely important when we get to 1 Thessalonians 4.15 because the first words of this verse say this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Okay, now think about what Paul is saying. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now Paul is about to make a statement of incredible magnitude. For this we say to you. And he wants to assure his readers that this pronouncement is not his own, but in fact the Lord is the author of it. Calvin points out that what is about to be said is, incredible to the human mind and also promises what is above the power and choice of men. He premises that he does not bring forward anything that is his own or that proceeds from men, but that the Lord is the author of it. It is probable, however, that the word of the Lord means what was taken from his discourses. So think about what Paul's saying. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now who's the Lord that's in view here? Jesus, right? The Lord, in the context of 1 Thessalonians, is the Lord Jesus himself. Consider the supernatural nature of such an event as the second coming of Christ, coming to resurrect those who are asleep in him and to gather gather them with his living saints in the sky by an amazing appearance in the clouds. This is, in fact, an incredible statement. Here Paul makes specific reference to the word of the Lord. 
Some argue that Paul is giving an authoritative prophetic utterance of knowledge here, while others maintain he is simply quoting a saying of Jesus, either from one of Jesus' sermons or from an actual gospel account such as Mark or Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse. Regardless of which of these may be true, the Lord himself did give extensive teaching about his coming, parousia, in the Olivet Discourse and in many other places as well, which are recorded for us in the Gospels. Something I want to bring up here is just think about this. Whenever you're thinking in terms of the New Testament and you're reading from the book of Acts all the way back to the back of the New Testament, all of the teaching of the apostles is predicated upon what? The teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. Why? Because when the Messiah comes, he will explain all things to us. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus is the original gospel preacher. He's the apostle sent from heaven. He's the one who came, God, in the flesh and spoke and told us. In these last days, says the writer to the Hebrews, God has spoken to us by his son. Right? And so when we read Jesus' read letters, not, not that they're any more inerrant or infallible than the rest of the letters, Nevertheless, they are the very record of what God himself has said to us. Amen? And so, in the context of thinking about the second coming, we need to keep this in our mind. And and I would say that the backbone of all prophetic literature is, in fact, Jesus himself describing the events of prophecy to us. Are you with me? Now, he did that in many places, but primarily he did that in the Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and in Luke 21. Okay? There, Jesus answers the specific question from his apostles. Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus goes on for a lengthy discourse and answers their question. What will be what? The sign of his coming his parousia you see he talked about his second coming too and he gave very vivid and lengthy discourse on that so i want you to keep in mind in the context of what paul is saying the backdrop of what jesus taught us about his second coming in fact several commentators believe this is a direct reference to the olivet discourse Specifically, the passage in Mark 13, 24 through 27, and Matthew 24, 30 through 31. So, um, the, the, the idea is, is that when this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, right? These commentators, and I myself believe that Paul is actually quoting Jesus' teaching. Paul is actually quoting Jesus' teaching. Now, there's some controversy about this. Uh, Some of the commentators say, no, he's not actually quoting Jesus' teaching because there's nothing exactly like what Paul says in the teaching of Jesus. Um, And, of course, they argue about that. And then some of them will say, well, he's not actually even quoting Jesus at all. He's, He's actually giving a prophetic utterance as an apostle or a prophet. He's, he's just saying, this is God's word, and I'm, and I'm giving it to you. 
uh, that is, the, if you will, kind of the other side of the argument. They're arguing one way or the other. Either he's quoting Jesus or he's giving his own prophetic utterance. Okay? Well, I happen to see something in Jesus' Olivet Discourse which to me looks almost identical to Paul's statements in verse 15 through 17. And um, not only that, but I was greatly encouraged to find this chart in Greg Beale's commentary on 1 Thessalonians, which is also, I handed that out to you. It, it uh, examines the two texts in 1 Thessalonians 4:15 through 17 and Matthew 24. And it shows you comparisons between what Paul says in the course of verses 15 through 17 and where there's a statement almost identical to that in Matthew 24, okay? So with that in mind, um, I want to read you these two passages. These are also at the bottom of your notes on page 46. So remember what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, right? He says, um, uh, by, by this we say to you by the word of the Lord, right? What does he say? He says, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Mark 13, 24 through 27 says this, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man, what? Coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. In Matthew 24, there is an almost direct quotation of what is recorded in Mark. And there it says in verses 29 through 31, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, so when you look at this chart and you see all these different features of what is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, look at the parallels that appear in, in the text in Matthew alone. So, for example, Christ returns. Well, you see the same thing in verse 2430, right? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He comes from heaven, verse 24, verse, uh, verse 30. Uh, he's accompanied by angels and with a trumpet of God. 
right? Verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, okay? He's coming with the trumpet. And um, in 1 Thessalonians, he will gather together first the dead in Christ and then we who are alive and remain. What does it say in 2431? He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. <coughs> who are Christ's elect? The church, the believers. Is that true? Well, some would argue that elect in this context is not the believers. I would argue that that's not true. And we don't have time to dig into that. But I'm going to let you go do that, okay? So go study the context of the book of Matthew, specifically chapter 24, and try to determine who the elect are. It's, it's a major controversy in premillennialism, okay? Let's go on here. Uh, he's in the clouds in both places, in 1 Thessalonians and in uh, Matthew 24. Um, the time is unknown, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 2. Jesus says the same thing in verse chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, nor the angels. Right? How about uh, the fact that he's coming like a thief? Right? He uses the same language. Jesus does in Matthew 24. That the unbelievers will be unaware of impending judgment. You remember there in chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, uh, when they are saying peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction will come upon them, right? They're, they're unaware of the impending doom. They think it's all peace and safety. Next thing they know, Christ is coming on the clouds. Judgment comes as pain upon an unexpected mother. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, also Matthew 24, verse 8. But, however... 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-5, the believers are not deceived that they should be taken unaware, right? Matthew 24, 43, that's what Jesus tells us to be ready for, to pay attention. He says, see, I've told you ahead of time. So that what? So that you won't be unaware. Believers are to be watchful. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, and Matthew 24, 37 through 39. And there is also, like I mentioned last week, a warning against drunkenness. A warning against drunkenness in both passages. Jesus clearly warns and says, don't be lazy and get drunk. Instead, be my diligent servant who is busy at my business. Right? This is in the parable that's, that's there toward the end of... Uh, Matthew 24. So, I show you all of these comparisons in this text because I believe Paul is quoting Jesus. I believe Paul is quoting Jesus right out of the written Olivet Discourse that he's speaking of. And uh, I want to tell you that part of the controversy is they say that in the passages in Mark and in Matthew, there is no resurrection of the dead. However, I would disagree with that. Specifically in Mark chapter 13, verse 27, it says this, And then he will send forth 
the angels, and will gather together his elect from where? From the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So what does that imply? Well, to me, it's clear. Where is he going to gather his elect from? Right. Well, specifically, if we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 17, and the insight we get from there is that not only is Jesus coming again with the clouds and with angels and with a great trumpet, but he's also going to what? Raise the dead in Christ first, and then he's going, after that, he's going to catch up the living believers together. To me, that sounds like gathering his elect from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So, in my view, Paul is directly quoting Jesus. Um, but it's hard to say that emphatically because the language is somewhat different in both places. However, we do get a lot of insight from looking at these two passages together about the second coming and the things that take place. Um, so, moving on from there, if you have questions... I'm going to give you some time here in just a few minutes to ask about that. Um, So write those down. Mm -hmm. Not only this, but it is very apparent that resurrection of dead saints along with the translation of living saints is a key feature in the second coming. One must acknowledge that this feature exists as a key component of the second coming in every passage that speaks of it, whether or not it gives further details about this feature or not. In one context, the writer may have in view a specific feature of the second coming, such as the destruction of the wicked and unbelieving, like, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, or of the establishment of the kingdom on earth, for example, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. But that does not mean that the second coming does not include key features which are spoken of in other passages where the writer has that feature in view. What am I saying with all those words? Here's what I'm saying. In the context of the whole New Testament, if you look at all these passages that speak about the second coming, okay, the second coming is accompanied by the resurrection of dead saints and the translation of living saints to meet Christ in the air. We call that event what? The rapture, okay? Now, of course, you understand there's a controversy between uh, pre-tribbers and mid-tribbers and post-tribbers and pre-rathers and wherever you fall on that, that whole thing. There's a controversy about when that happens. Okay, So, for example, just to make it really clear, a, a pre-tribber would say that Christ comes for the rapture before the 70th week of Daniel, and, and that that happens here, okay? Whereas the second coming is actually a separate event from that that happens right at the beginning of the thousand years and at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Understand? That is the concept of pre-tribulational rapture. Okay? That is that Christ comes in the resurrection and translation of the living saints actually happens seven years before the second coming. Did I say that accurately, you dispies? Yes? Okay. So, um, the deal is that a post-tribulational rapture, on the other hand, just to draw a sharp contrast, 
says that no, the the rapture, the resurrection of the dead saints and the translation of the living saints actually happens right at the same time as the second coming. Okay? This is the whole argument between pre-trib and post-trib. Are you with me? And if you're mid-trib, well, it's in the middle. <laughs> and if you're pre-wrath, well, guess what? It's in the middle of this. And the amillennialists don't argue about this. No, 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 no. They think the second coming happened in 70 A.D. Yet, they, not true. Uh, many amillennialists are looking forward to a future rapture that will happen at the consummation of the ages. So, and here's again, it depends on which amillennialist you read. So. You know, this thing gets real deep real fast. But but among pre-tribbers, I'm sorry, pre-millennialists, okay, the main argue about the timing of the rapture is pre-trib and post-trib, and that's what it is right there. Okay, but what I'm saying is regardless of whether you're pre-trib or post-trib, the second coming in Scripture is accompanied with a rapture, a resurrection of dead saints and a translation of living saints. If you're a pre-tribber, you think that happens seven years before uh, the second coming. If you're a post-tribber, you think it happens at the same time as the second coming. Are you with me? You understand that, that difference? Nevertheless, you can't rule out the fact that there is a resurrection and rapture that happens at the second coming of Christ. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying here, although I believe that, you, if you're a pre-tribber, you still believe that. You just think that the rapture happens seven years earlier. Okay, And, of course, that's the position of very, many popular and very sound Bible teachers. Okay, So <clears throat> that being said, that's what I meant by all that big, long sentence. Okay? <clears throat> Going on, rather, we get a much clearer picture in our minds of all of the events which culminate at the second coming and the order in which they do as we piece together all the different passages which refer to it. And even though there are many passages which give many features in chronological order of events, the second coming is an event of such magnanimous proportions and supernatural intervention into the natural order of events that we cannot get a perfect picture, nor can we comprehend the whole nature and sense of what will happen, but will instead marvel at his glorious appearing with much wonder and awe. Okay? Let me tell you, this is a big deal that goes down. You with me? It is a real big deal. Okay? Tell me what happens when the sun doesn't shine, the moon no longer shines, the stars fall from the sky, and guess what? The sky rolls up like a scroll. Okay, you got the picture? No sun, no moon, no stars, no sky. Okay, and what happens? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and every eye will see him coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Tell me how Jesus comes bodily in the sky and every eye in the world can see him. I'm telling you, it's a big deal that goes down. Okay? He is going to change the whole order of time and space when he comes back. 
it is going to be a cataclysmic event, to say the least. Okay? And, and so this is the kind of thing that the Scripture talks about. Nevertheless, we believers are going to marvel on that day. We've been waiting for this thing, right? Eagerly expecting this thing. Regardless, I'm sorry, in summary, Paul's specific reference to the word of the Lord, in my view, is a reference to the Olivet Discourse, either a direct quotation from Paul's memory or his paraphrase of an Olivet passage. Regardless of the validity of my position on this, we understand that Paul is making the point that what he is about to say, he says as a direct quotation of God's word and by God's authority, whether that be a previously recorded quote or not. Okay, so just real quick, are there any questions? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, shoot. Mm-hmm. As a believer, we're not under that wrath. Is, is that, isn't that what the word says? Absolutely. So at the coming of so, no matter what the scripture says, we know it clearly says this, that the believer will not endure or be subject to the wrath of God. Amen? So, if somebody's trying to tell you that the, that the rapture happens after the tribulation, somehow they must have a plausible biblical argument for how the church does not go through or is subject to the wrath of God. Are you with me? Otherwise, their position is inconsistent. Would you agree? So, if you're considering the post-trib position, I would say that's high on the list. How does a post-tribber explain how the church is not subject to God's wrath? They need to do that. If they don't do that, their position is inconsistent with a fundamental truth in Scripture, right? So, I would say mark that as high on your list and get an answer. Otherwise, you need to be looking somewhere else for the understanding, right? Anthony? Yeah, okay, so he's commenting on how there can be wrath going on and God's people can be kept from the wrath by using a biblical type of the children of Israel in the nation of Egypt during the plagues. Somebody else have a question? Uh-huh. Yeah, you're commenting on that same thing again? Yeah, okay, she's saying divine protection. Is there another question on another related issue? We'll get to that in great length, I promise. Okay? (laughs) So the question I'm asking for explanation is the controversy of the elect in Matthew. Uh Huh? Can you explain the controversy? Yeah, okay, so uh, just I'll get right to the point. Dispensational premillennialists or pre-tribbers say that that event is not the rapture and that those elect are not the church. That the elect in the context of, of the book of Matthew is not always, in sp- specifically in that passage, not the church. That that gathering of the elect is a gathering of, uh, well, it depends on which pre-tribber you read, too. Some of them will say that it's a gathering of people unto judgment, 
others, like, for example, John MacArthur, he says, no, that's just the gathering of all of God's elect at the second coming, uh, where, where he actually gathers them all together before he actually establishes his throne in heaven. Something like that is how MacArthur describes that. And frankly, I feel like his description of that is much more consistent with scripture than the other, that that's a gathering of people unto judgment. Nevertheless, I think if you're considering pre-trib or post-trib, that ought to be high on your list of answers that pre-tribbers give you. Are you with me? Who, who, what's happening here in Matthew? Is this the second coming? Because if it is, if that's the rapture, it's clearly after the tribulation. Right? That's what it says. Immediately after the tribulation, he will gather his elect from the four winds. Right? So you need to get an answer from the pre-tribbers on that. Just like you need to get an answer from the post-tribbers on how God's people are not subject to God's wrath. Okay? Thus the nature of the controversy. Are you with me? Okay, with that, let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray as we chew on these things and we read through Scripture and we examine closely and we think and we pray, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to first of all recognize that you are God over all these things and that, Lord, you're bringing your world to an end which you have designed. And I pray that we would look with eager hope to that day when you come and take us to be with you, Lord. Oh, Lord, how we long for that day, to be in your presence and to be with you forever. God, that is our great hope. And so to that we eagerly look. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.